the ill pilot's plain tales, Captain Anderson, the crash. An air hostess calmly walked through the crashing airliner, telling the passengers, please fasten your seatbelts, keep your seats. Then she returned to the galley near the tail, sat herself down and waited. One of the passengers had seen oil spurting from an engine and on the flight deck, Captain Anderson was nursing his aircraft in. The engine had failed not long after takeoff, following that massive oil leak, and his aircraft didn't have a good reputation for single-engined flying. He was concentrating hard, but in the back of his mind were thoughts of his pregnant wife back home, less than a month from giving birth to his third son. He had a name in mind, Nicholas the patron saint of sailors, merchants, archers, repentant thieves, children, pawnbrokers, students, and brewers. Well, one out of seven isn't bad. His other two boys, eight and four, were a handful, and they all lived in a little cottage in the Kentish countryside, nestled amongst the hop farms. Pretty soon he would have to find somewhere bigger, to bring up his growing family. Perhaps he would build a new house on the outskirts of Guildford, an ancient and blossoming town that took its name from an original Saxon village on a ford across the River Way, called the Golden Ford, because of the mass of yellow flowers that grew there and the golden sands that marked the riverbanks. He had feathered the failing engine and had the other up to full power, but it was hard to maintain altitude as he positioned his aircraft on a long base for runway 26 at Blackbush Airport. He knew that the Viking he flew didn't have a good accident record and he hoped he could nurse it in the last few miles to bring his 36 passengers and crew safely home. Even as World War II came to an end, the Vickers Viking was being designed and the first prototype, built by the Vickers Experimental Department at its wartime Fox Warren dispersal site, first flew in the safe hands of test pilot Mutt Summers at Wisley Airfield in June 1945. Summers was one of the most famous test pilots of his era, conducting first test flights on a record 54 new aircraft. He flew early fighters like the Gloucester Gamecock and the Bristol Bulldog, all the way up to fly the first of Britain's nuclear V-bombers, the Vickers Valiant. But perhaps his most famous achievement was to be the first to fly the Supermarine Spitfire. His nickname, Mutt, came from his habit of peeing on the tail wheels of new aircraft that he flew, claiming that it was dangerous to crash with a full bladder. The Viking was a twin-engined, short-to-medium-range, tail-wheeled airliner powered by a pair of Bristol Hercules radial engines built with 14 cylinders in two rows. It used the same wing and undercarriage as the Wellington bomber, 
but had a completely new all-metal fuselage. It was short and looked a bit dumpy, somewhat like the DC-3, but 163 would be built and serve with a myriad of airlines around the world, 35 of which were in the UK alone. Military versions, known as the Valletta and Varsity, would serve in the RAF and many other countries' air forces, numbering an additional 426. There was even a Viking powered by a pair of Rolls-Royce Neen turbojets, which flew from London to Paris in 34 minutes and reached a magnificent 415 miles per hour. Of the 163 civil Vikings built, nearly a third would be written off, several doing exactly what Captain Anderson was attempting that day. A Viking belonging to Don Everall Aviation was departing Heraklion Airport in Greece, when shortly after takeoff an engine appeared to fail. The aircraft soon lost height, and crashed into the sea, killing the three occupants on board. Even closer to home, an Eagle Airways Viking was on a trooping flight from Blackbush to Tripoli, carrying 25 army men, a couple of civilians from the war office, a wife and two children with a crew of five. Shortly after takeoff, the pilot radioed the message, I have a port engine failure. I'm making a left-hand circuit to come in again. As the aircraft turned onto finals less than a mile from the runway, it crashed into a wooded copse on Star Hill and burst into flames. There was only one survivor. An Air India Viking was inbound to Mumbai Airport following an engine failure when it crashed whilst trying to land all survived. An independent air travel cargo aircraft suffered an engine problem after takeoff from Heathrow and decided to land at Blackbush, but they couldn't maintain height and they crashed into houses, killing all the crew and a mother with her three children on the ground. Even the original prototype crashed during a single-engine performance test when the live engine failed. The aircraft made a forced landing at Effingham, and everyone survived. There were plenty of other causes for Vikings to crash. A number flew into terrain, such as the side of Monte Carlo in Corsica, Monte La Cinta in Sicily, and the Irish Law Mountain in Scotland. Several went down in bad weather, and in the days before auto-landing systems, attempting to land in fog. There were unexplained losses when aircraft just disappeared into an ocean, but perhaps the most remarkable was the flight of BEA's Viking, Gulf Alpha India Victor Lima, from Northolt to Paris on the 13th of April 1950. They were in the cruise over the English Channel, and weaving around some thunderstorms when the aircraft shook to the sound of a huge explosion. The cockpit door flew off its hinges and struck the unfortunate first officer, and when Captain Ian Harvey looked back, he saw carnage in the rear of the aircraft 
amongst which lay his hostess, Sue Cramsey, severely injured and bleeding, with one arm almost severed. She was attended to by brave passengers who pulled her to safety away from a gaping hole in the aircraft. The explosion had wrecked the galley and toilet and had left holes in both sides of the Viking's fuselage, one of which was eight feet high and four feet wide. Damage to the control wires that led to the tail made it almost impossible to move the rudder and elevators. A former RAF bomber pilot, Captain Harvey, eased his crippled aircraft around and pointed it back towards Northolt, thinking he might have suffered an enormous lightning strike. Controlling his aircraft was far from easy, and he had to overshoot from his first attempt to land, but after a long straight-in approach, he safely brought his passengers home on the second attempt. On investigation, it was discovered that the distorted metal around the explosion area showed that the source had been inside the aircraft, probably a bomb hidden in the toilet waste paper bin. Behind the police patrol entrance to number six hangar at North Holt Airport is the Viking airliner Vigilant, damaged by an explosion in mid-channel. At first thought to have been caused by lightning, it's now known that a time bomb, probably made of gelignite, was responsible for the explosion. It injured the Vikings' air hostess, but the 28 passengers were happily brought to safety by pilot Ian Harvey, who flew his plane home despite a wrecked rudder control. Officers from Scotland Yard's security branch then took over, searching for possible clues. Even the fuel pipes and tanks are examined. Suspicion fell onto a French passenger who was allegedly trying to kill himself, but nothing was proven. The 31 other people on board the Viking, 27 passengers and 4 crew, were to be sacrificed as part of his suicide plan. Captain Ian Harvey received the George Medal for his gallantry and extreme coolness in landing the crippled Viking. After a long career... He died in 2004, aged 83. Sue Cramsey, the flight attendant, made a full recovery from her injuries and returned to duty, as did the aircraft, named Vigilant, which was eventually repaired, a testament to its design and inherent strength. Back aboard Captain Anderson's aircraft, he was configuring the machine for a single-engine landing back at Black. He had reached a critical stage because he was losing altitude faster than was ideal as the single bellowing Bristol Hercules struggled to give enough power to keep the Viking flying at a mere 115 knots. He delayed lowering the undercarriage to the last possible moment but then, as it appeared to clunk into place, a red warning light flickered, indicating that it wasn't fully locked down. When he looked back up from the warning, trying to assess his options, he realised that time had run out. He was below 400 feet and he didn't have enough power to complete an overshoot. His speed had fallen to only 100 knots and he could see that he was sinking fast. Full power and boost on his remaining engine wasn't enough to arrest the descent, 
and the aircraft was yawing in response to the asymmetric thrust. As he dropped into some low ground, the runway disappeared from view, and he tried to stretch the flight out, but the speed was falling faster now. He knew that there was nothing more his aircraft could give him to prevent a crash. At the last possible moment, he firmly raised the nose to cushion the impact as they struck the earth only yards from the airfield boundary. They hit rising ground and bounced, skidding onto the airfield whilst the undercarriage collapsed and the outer portion of the starboard wing and engine were torn off. Four young ladies aboard from the Bedford Education Office afterwards explained, We didn't know anything was wrong till we felt a bump. There was a cloud of smoke and then a sheet of flame as the crippled aircraft bounced on for another quarter of a mile. An eyewitness in another aircraft said, We were told by radio that the Viking had priority to land. I saw it coming in low on one engine. Then, just before it reached the runway, that engine seemed to cut out. We thought everyone aboard must perish, but when we came back around two and a half minutes later, after a circuit, there were people getting out. It was a miracle. When the wrecked aircraft came grinding to a halt, Captain Anderson and his first officer began their emergency shutdown drills, and in the back, air hostess Beryl Rothwell of Bayswater went to the rear door, flung it open, and announced in matter-of-fact tones, This way, please. That night, the passengers were full of praise for the coolness and skill of Captain Anderson and the air hostess. Mrs Hare of Sevenoaks told how a smiling Miss Rothwell reassured the passengers that there was nothing to worry about. Then, as the plane crashed, she whipped open the door and asked us to get out quickly. Seconds later, the whole wreck was ablaze. Miss Rothwell, two years with the airline, declared, the passengers themselves were the real heroes. They showed no panic. One couple, who were only married on Saturday and on their way to Italy, said, We've lost all our kit. It looks as if the honeymoon will be in Cornwall now. As the newspapers put it, bystanders had waved goodbye as the passengers went on board for a Riviera flight. Minutes later, they were gasping as the Viking plunged to the ground in flames, but their horror turned to cheers, for from the fire-blackened doorway the passengers filed out as calmly as if they were in a bus queue. Only a few of the passengers needed to visit a hospital. One of the worst injuries was that inflicted on Captain Anderson, who broke his arm as he fought with the controls during the impact. Despite his injury, he ensured that everyone had safely evacuated the aircraft before he himself climbed out of the burning airliner. The inquiry noted that the aircraft had first struck the ground with its tail wheel only 135 yards, 123 metres, from the runway in line with the right-hand edge. 
By the time of ground impact, the undercarriage downlock plungers had fully engaged. They concluded that the accident was the result of the captain allowing the aircraft to stall when making a single-engined approach to land. A contributing factor was distraction of the captain's attention by the flickering of the undercarriage red indicator light during a critical stage of the approach. A few weeks later, with his arms still in plaster, Captain and Mrs. Anderson were pleased to announce the arrival of their third son, Nicholas James. Captain Anderson Sr. went on to have a successful career with Airwork Limited, which would, over time, become British United Airways, British Caledonian Airways and British Airways, before he moved overseas to become the Boeing 707 Fleet Manager of Kuwait Airways. In addition to the Viking, he would fly the DC-2, the Bristol Britannia, Vickers VC-10, Boeing 707 and Boeing 747. His youngest son, Nicholas, would continue the family tradition and join the RAF to fly F-4 Phantoms, Hawk T-1s, F-A-18 Hornets and the Panavia F-3 Tornado before, like his father, becoming a civil airline pilot and flying the Airbus A340 and A330 for Virgin Atlantic Airways. But it was many years before he would discover just how close he came to never knowing his father. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at airlinepilotguy.com. And if you're enjoying Plane Tales, then why not leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice? It would help us out enormously. Many thanks for listening.